Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. Nice to see you this morning. Nice to see you too. And welcome former state Senator Debbie Ingram, who is also the executive director of the Vermont Interfaith Action Alliance. No, just Just Interfaith Action, yeah. (laughs) I wrote that down even. Yeah, everybody Everybody gets it wrong. Don't worry. (laughs) Well, so good news, Debbie. The conversation is just going to go down, you know, uphill from here. Can't get worse. So glad you can join us. And we're going to be talking about Proposition 2 today, following up on our conversation last week with Reverend Mark Hughes. Um, So Debbie, thank you for joining us. And I'm curious, uh, one thing I've been sitting with with this conversation is that I think for a lot of Vermonters, they know the story and we love on this show talking, peeling back the stories that we tell ourselves we tell ourselves a story that we don't have slavery in the constitution. In fact, we're one of the first states or as a Republic to, to outlaw it. And, you know, Reverend Mark Hughes very clearly said, no, no, that's not the case. So for you, when you started having those conversations around proposition two and the constitution, did you yourself have to peel away kind of misconceptions or stories around the role of slavery in the Vermont Constitution? I did. I did. I, well, I'm not, I'm not a native Vermonter, so maybe it was a little bit easier. I think I, I do find that native Vermonters are extremely proud of being the first state to abolish slavery. And um, so it, it wasn't quite as, as jarring for me, I guess. But I, but I think, you know, we're finding uh, all throughout um, the country in many different ways now that the things that we were taught as young people are, are not really true. A lot of them, you know, that we, we were taught all sorts of things that um, uh, either were incomplete or, uh, or really deceptive uh, or painted, uh, you know, well, frankly, painted white people in a much better light than, um, than we deserve to be painted uh, in some instances. So, you know, actually, a- after a while, I was like, kind of like, well, this is just another one of those, another one of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious for you, Emily, when, when the conversation sort of hit your r- radar around Proposition 2, um, what, what for you did you sit with? Did you have any stories or misconceptions to peel away yourself? Um, I actually did not know, uh, the first time I learned the history of Vermont's role in um, both banning slavery, I learned that at the same time that I learned about early slave, about folks being enslaved in Vermont. Like I learned both, I learned that history simultaneously. because when I was in graduate school, I had the privilege of being friends with Amani Whitfield, who I mentioned in our last episode, was really like written the history that needed to be told about all of these issues um, for Vermont. 
And so I learned that whole story at one time and didn't have anything to unpack. I'm perhaps similar to Debbie, did not grow up here, have, you know, been here my whole adult life, but um, learned that story early enough on as sort of a complete story. What's been an interesting add-on to it, I think, is um, I think partly with the Brattleboro Words Trail and with um, which sort of originate the and then the African-American Heritage Trail that was started um, down here in Brattleboro by Curtis Reed. I've had some great opportunities to build out my knowledge around, you know, folks' theories of our participation in the Underground Railroad and like the reality, like we said last episode, you know, like probably it was mostly like folks hiding booze during prohibition that all those like cute trapdoors came from. Um, and so that's that's been sort of where I came. It wasn't a lot of unpacking. It's been interesting to, you know, through the debate around, and actually it was, at least in the House, not a particularly fiercely debated issue. People felt fairly comfortable voting yes. Um, it's been interesting to have the opportunity to have these conversations as a result of amending the constitution, conversations that I don't know would have happened otherwise with some of my colleagues um, who did have more stories to unpack. Um, because they had learned something else earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, I, of course, grew up in Vermont, as as we've talked about on, on other shows. And um, I was trying to, you know, in prepping for the show, I was trying to kind of cast back into the Wayback Machine and remember, like, what I learned and what I felt when this conversation hit the, hit my radar. Um, and I think what's interesting for me, I, I wonder if I'd had a, I would have had a different um, reaction if I wasn't a journalist. Um, but I remember a moment of, huh, I thought I learned something different. And then um, just, you know, as a journalist, so often, you know, information starts out one way. And as you dig into it, you find new layers and you find new nuances. So um, I think that's just where I went next. Like, okay, so what are the nuances here? What, what are, you know, who were our founders and what did they believe at the time? And who, do, who are we now? And what do we believe now? Mm -hmm. And what do we need to know? Um, I think is where I went. Um, but I know for everyone, it wasn't that, you know, it was a, it's a, it was a big story for a lot of people in my life to unpack. Um, and I think kind of a disappointing story to unpack for a lot of people. Um, because as, as you said, Debbie, people, you know, a lot of Vermonters are very proud of, of their history. Um, for, for you, Debbie, your, the organization you work with, the Vermont Interfaith Action, has been one of the lead organizations on moving prop to forward. Um, what were some of the, um, was it an easy uh, proposition to move forward? Did it like walk us through that? Walk us through that um, experience. Sure. <clears throat> so Vermont and Faith Action is a faith-based community organizing federation. And um, our congregations actually had um, a couple of years ago, uh, actually, uh, primarily motivated by the George Floyd um, hor horrible killing. Um, they had started to have book 
studies and discussion groups and uh, intense conversations about uh, systemic racism in, in our country and racism in Vermont. And so I already had a lot of really highly motivated um, um, people in our congregations and, and frankly, well, the, our congregations reflect Vermont as a whole. So they're, they're mostly white, uh, white Vermonters. Um, but there were a lot of people who were very motivated to not just do these studies and have these talks, but actually start taking action around racism and social justice. So uh, I had already had um, three groups formed that were, that's how we do our work is we, we form organizing committees and they look uh, carefully and thoroughly at uh, social justice issues. And then uh, our organizers lead them through a process to try to actually uh, make impactful systemic change. And so we had we had two groups working on various aspects of economic opportunities, one on business opportunities, one on um, housing and land ownership for people of color, and another one working on reimagining public safety. So then when um, it, it be, be, became time to start looking towards the 2022 election, it was very easy to uh, reach out to those folks and say, is this something that you would like to uh, take on uh, this campaign and try to make sure that this uh, gets passed so that we can then also use it as a foundation for continuing our systemic racism work into the future. Uh, but it'll be a great way to have the conversation with Vermonters all over the state and help them to, to become more aware of systemic racism and, and what that's doing uh, to, to our country and to our state. So it was actually uh, very easy to get to get the people at, at VIA on board. And then since then, um, uh, but we also felt that it was very important to, since we are a white-led and mostly white organization, uh, that we wanted to make sure that we reached out to a Black-led organization. And that's, um, you know, my relationship with Mark Hughes that you interviewed last week and the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance was a natural uh, uh, partnership for us. So <clears throat> the entire time we've been working very closely with the RJA and um, and it's really provided that I, I think appropriate balance for, you know, we want to be, we don't want to be white saviors. We want to be good white allies and white co-conspirators. Um, and we want to make sure that the maxim, you know, nothing about us without us um, is happening for um, for Black Vermonters. Uh, and and so that it's a black-led movement also. So we've uh, we've been navigating that um, during the the whole campaign. And mostly, what we're finding actually is uh, a lot of Vermonters just don't know about this <laughs> proposal. So just in terms of running the campaign more widely, a lot of it has been um, having conversations with people uh, either um, within um, our volunteers' own networks, personal networks, or we've done a lot of tabling actually at public public places and just, you know, called out to people and, and uh, you know, at, folks have been at the Brattleboro Co-op and we've had people on Church Street in Burlington and at the 
um, the farmer's market in, uh, in Barrie and, you know, uh, just asking people, have you even heard of this? And, um, uh, and they haven't, <laughs> a lot of them have not, but we've also been using, you know, lots of other, uh, organizing techniques and campaigning techniques to, to get the message out there. Uh, but it's been, um, I, I think it's really been very rewarding for our organization and for the individuals, uh, in our organization and for our partnership with Vermont Racial Justice Alliance. I'm curious what your members, what those conversations look like that your members are having. I mean, once someone does hear about it, the amendment, what do they think? I mean, I, you know, I was talking to my son about it um, last week and he was, you know, supportive, excited, you know, sort of surprised it was still there in the language. And then we got to have a really great conversation about prison labor, which we'd never had before. Um, but what sort of, where does the conversation go with your members? Yeah, it varies, but that what you just described with your son happens very frequently. <laughs> uh, actually, people, uh, uh, their initial uh, reaction is surprise and shock that, oh, this hasn't been done already. What, you know, this is, this is crazy. Um, I, I would say the majority of people then from there go, oh, well, of course we have to do this. Um, but there, there are often questions about, uh, are other states doing this? Um, um, you know, I, why do we need to do that? There, there is the pushback that we get is more kind of, um, uh, well, you know, plantations don't exist anymore. There is no chattel slavery. You know, why is this necessary? Uh, so then we have to talk about um, the fact that, well, in, in fact, um, in our country, slavery has never been completely abolished. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't do it because that was only for the states in rebellion. Um, the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution has an exception for punishment of a crime. Uh, so there's really never been any uh, complete abolition of, of slavery. Um, you know, uh, so th that that usually brings people into interesting conversations. Um, sometimes people talk about prison labor. We don't get that quite as much. We've gotten that more from the media, um, you know, but we do bring up things like human. It also has implications for I think, human trafficking, uh, even for um, uh, commitment of people with mental health issues. Um, sometimes people will actually volunteer themselves in order to get um support and services. And then the state, depending on how severely mentally ill the state thinks they are, they can be, they can have some of their rights taken away. So that actually is another conversation we could have. I mean, it does, it certainly has implications for uh, all kinds of things in our society, but, um, but yeah, it's, they are very, very fascinating conversations. So, um, just for listeners, in case you haven't seen Proposition 2 yet, you'll see it on your ballot, which has probably arrived in your mailbox. So uh, hope, hope you will be voting early. Um, but what Proposition does is it revises the current constitution to very explicitly prohibit slavery and indentured servitude. Um, I'm curious, Debbie and uh, Emily, as a state, do we have a definition of what slavery is? Like when we talk about, oh, we have all, it could have all these implications, but like, do we actually have a working definition of what slavery is? I think that's something that the courts will take on if, if this 
amendment passes and and certain groups want to use it as a way to challenge some of our current practices uh, that will actually go through the court, you know, court system. I, I'm not aware, I mean, maybe Emily is, but I'm not aware of any statutes that uh, that exist in Vermont uh, uh, law um, that actually defines slavery. I'm not either. And Debbie, that sort of brings me to a question that I'm curious about, which is, you know, one of the interesting things for me as a House member um, in these constitutional amendments is I like, I never get to mess with them, right? So... <laughs> All of the fun happens in the Senate. <laughs> so, and like, again, refresher for listeners. Sorry if you already heard me say this like 8,000 times, but constitutional amendment starts in the Senate only in certain years. They draft it, they pass it. It comes to the House where we can vote it up or down. We can't amend it. And then in the next, if it passes the House, then in the next biennium, which biennium are two years long, different from biannual. Biennium are two years long. The next biennium, it gets voted on the Senate, can't be changed, gets voted on again in the House, can't be changed. If it passes in both chambers, then it goes to the governor who has to make a declaration. The declaration says it's gonna be on the ballot. It goes to the ballot. That's gonna be what we vote on in November. So Debbie, like what, I understand that you are the lead sponsor of this amendment in the Senate. What? I like, you know, I stay in my own little chamber for the most part, unless there's, you know, I have a bill I sent over. So what did that debate look like and how did the crafting work? Did it, is the language on our ballot the same language that you introduced? Sorry, there goes my cat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he thinks the Senate is fascinating. Um, yes, so is, uh, well, actually the language in the um that's it, going into the actual constitution uh did change um and there was quite a lot of uh debate uh there was also change of what the purpose of the uh amendment was for so um yeah i think when it first you know it was just, it also goes through amendments go through the regular committee process so it was assigned to government operations and i think at the beginning let's see there were let's see i guess there were five members of that committee and, you know, only two of them really supported it as it was, you know, um, so there was quite a lot of um, conversation and discussion and, uh, you know, wound up being uh, multipartisan support and we only actually, actually only had one person in the Senate vote against it, but, um, but no, it, it was, it was a long conversation and, um, you know, Mark, Mark Hughes uh, testified, but so did other, you know, other people. Um, we had, um, you know, there was a lot of conversation about the historical nature uh, and the historical intent of the original language. There was uh, certainly um, by some uh, by historians and lawyers, there was defense of the original language, you know, trying to justify why Vermont has the reputation of being the first state in the union to abolish slavery. Um, there was, uh, but there were, some of it was so uh, hard to understand and convoluted um, that I just kept saying, you know, what we're trying to do here is, is, is really make sure that there is just plain language, that the, that the straightforward meaning of the plain language to anybody, you know, you don't, you don't, you shouldn't have to be a legal expert or historian to read our constitution and understand what it's saying and what what values it's it's uh, propagating so 
Um, yeah, but there was a lot, there was a lot, <laughs> there was quite, and of course we were doing um, a million other things, you know, too, at, at the same time. Uh, but, but the committee itself was very representative of the rest of the, of the, uh, of the chamber. So when, here we go again. So when, um, you know, we got it through the committee and they did, you know, vote for it unanimously, I, I, I breathed a sigh of relief because I thought, oh, okay, now we're going to be, we're going to be fine because, uh, you know, pe other people in the Senate will understand um, uh, that we've resolved these concerns and these arguments and, and we'll be able to move ahead. And was it fairly clear sailing after that? Uh, yes, as I said, there was just the one uh, senator who voted against it, and uh, and he was consistent. He voted against it in the second biennium, also. And I and I understand he's 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 still saying that it <laughs> that it <laughs> doesn't need to be passed. But anyway, that's you know the, those uh, folks like him are are in the minority, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, Emily, you said the the conversations and the the passage of Proposition Two in the House was was fairly easy. Um, but do you remember some of what what your fellow reps were sitting with or questions they had or? I mean, there's this interesting, I think, challenge that the proposition has on its journey, which is that it is so overshadowed by a much more controversial constitutional amendment that gets to sit next to it. Um, and so, Debbie, when you said that, you know, a lot of folks haven't heard about it, I imagine a lot of that is because folks are putting so much energy into understanding the Reproductive Liberty Amendment. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, you know, I think in some ways my memory is, I have a very strong memory of the really like endless and divisive and deeply prepped debate on the Reproductive Liberty Amendment and proposition to sort of paled in comparison. Um, in terms of debate. I also, there were certainly, you know, a few folks who made a, you know, historic argument that we shouldn't mess with, you know, we should keep this for the history books. I mean, I think that's why we have history books though, is to keep the history books. That's what the historic records for. No, that's like, we have historic records. Like that's a whole, we have a whole thing called historic records and history. And archives and archives. That's what we do for the history books. We have history books. And like that, I have trouble in debates like that because I sometimes I'm like, I don't know how to talk about this in a non-belied way because like that's that's what it is. Um, and so there was a little bit of that. I think it sort of opened up an opportunity for people to have a small debate on like, is systemic racism real or not? Which, you know, occasionally a member will open up just so that we can all argue about it for a while and then move on. Um, there was some grandstanding. Um, and there was actually like a really, I remember a very, the whole thing was opened up with an incredibly moving speech um, by one of our very few members who's black, um, Hal Colston, who represents Winooski and is retiring this year. He's not coming back to the legislature, um, talking about how important it was for him to see this and to have the constitution reflect him as a black man in Vermont feeling free or wanting to feel free or deserving to feel free. And I think um, Hal has a really resonant moral compass when he speaks mm -hmm. and he rarely speaks on the floor. And when he does, it 
like really create sort of like a clarion call echo through the chamber. And I think that also really helped the debate um, move forward in a respectful way. And is yet further evidence of why having a representative, House of Representatives is makes better policy. <laughs> Reason number 822. Um, so that's what, you know, that's what it looked like in the House. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to get very explicit because you mentioned a <clears throat> phone call from a constituent, Emily, mm -hmm. asking what does yes mean? What does no mean? Mm -hmm. So just for the, the sake of our listeners who haven't circled in their ballots yet, would you walk us through that? Yeah, sure. Um, so on the ballot, in addition to all the people's names with the little bubbles, you everyone is also going to have language that I don't have right in front of me right now. I'm sorry. Um, now I'm wondering if I do put my ballot actually. I feel a little nervous about that. Um, thought it was on the desk. So I, I have the language if you want me to read it. That would be great. And then I can explain what a yes and a no means. Okay. So article one, and I'm just going to read right from the state website. All persons born free, their natural rights, slavery, and indentured servitude prohibited. That all persons are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and unalienable rights, amongst which are the enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Therefore, Slavery and indentured servitude in any form are prohibited. And so if you vote yes in that little bubble, it means that you affirm that language and the constitution, you vote yes, the constitution should be amended to reflect that new language of prohibition, full prohibition. Thank you. And Debbie, what do you, um, we have a few minutes before we need to go to break. What what do you want listeners at this point to understand or take away? Well, that we're making uh, bottom line here is that we are taking a moral stand. We are, we are saying, and we are asserting as Vermonters that it is in our, our value system that we declare slavery to be morally reprehensible and that we think it has no place in our constitution. And we just want to make that completely clear. Uh, so any of the other stuff, you know, the, <laughs> the other ramifications about all kinds of other things or whether we were the first or what, or just, or whatever, any, it, 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 all, all of that really should just melt away because what we're doing is we're saying slavery is morally reprehensible and it has no place in our constitution. Thank you. The Montpelier happy hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station is going to hear from some of our underwriters. So stay tuned, we will be right back.
welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser, the regular contributor to this show, and our guest, Debbie Ingram, who is the Executive Director of the Vermont Interfaith Action, as well as a former Senator for the state of Vermont. And we have been talking about Proposition 2, which is an amendment to the Constitution to, to clearly prohibit slavery and indentured servitude, which you will see on your November ballot um, if you have checked your mailbox lately. Um, Debbie, take us to... Wait, wait, wait. We forgot an important piece. Oh, we did. Emily, what do we need to remind people of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not of the station, nor platform, nor employer of the people speaking or where it is being broadcast. Thank you very much. Um, so, Debbie, take us to the issue of systemic racism, because in many ways, Proposition 2 is... Um, an important step, but it's not the only step we need to take in Vermont to um, create a more equitable community. Um, walk us through that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, let me first just say that I think um, there's a lot of confusion out there uh, in the conversations that I've had um, among among white people about the difference between overt racism and systemic racism. So I just want to say something about that just a minute. Uh, you know, people, um, you know, they, everybody, I think every decent human being universally deplores uh, you know, any kind of hate crime or vandalism or using um, horrible language, offensive language, um, white person to a black person, um, you know, having any kind of incidents, um, person to person. Um, and, and that is actually overt racism. Some people will confuse that and, and think that that sort of behavior is systemic racism. But when we use the phrase systemic racism, what we're talking about is how our very um, system, our institutions are set up to advantage white people over at the expense of uh, black people. So, you know, in housing, um, you know, white people will be uh, have a much better opportunity to rent an apartment or buy a house than a black person does. Uh, in um, in in policing, um, you know, uh, and the criminal justice system, uh, black people are are overly represented according to their proportion in the population than they are in being involved in those systems. Um, in health equity, uh, it, there's there's all kinds of data to support all of this too. So lest, lest you think I'm just making this up, there's, you know, health equity, uh, black people have uh, much lower uh, health outcomes, much worse than white people. Um, uh, all, you know, so uh, in education, um, you know, all, all kinds of systems are, are, uh, they're they're really stacked against uh, black people and, and other people of color. So um, there there was already uh, this last biennium uh, before proposal two started in in its uh, uh, way to uh, being passed as amendment. 
we already had introduced uh, legislation that would address some of these things. Um, you know, we have, Vermonters may not know that we have a, a terrific uh, director of racial equity. Uh, we have a, a position for that. And the person who fills it happens to be really excellent at her job. And she had, uh, her office had gone through a lot of the the statutes and the the systems that we have in, in government. And she had created an omnibus bill to try to address um, some of the, some of the the problems there and, and correct them, uh, that did, that bill didn't get very far. Uh, there were other didn't she sort of come on the show once, Olga? She did several okay. years ago. Yep, which um, first was yeah, which she has yeah, and she her office also has this really cool uh, new program called the Ideal Program for mm -hmm. municipalities. So. I would encourage you to have her on again. She's got a lot of good things going on. She also got money to hire another couple of people on staff. So she's able to, to do some more things. But we'd love to support that office's work more. Uh, there was also Maybe legislation. Before you, before you jump to the next thing, what uh -huh. um, what was in that omnibus bill? Oh, gosh, I can't remember all the details okay. now. I'm like afraid, but but. Oh, things like um, like setting up uh, an assessment of uh, legislation uh, that each bill, every bill could be uh, run through to make sure that it's actually affecting people uh, equally. Um, you know, there were other things about how programs are administered, about how, um, you know, uh, bids are, uh, are, are, you know, requests for proposals for bids for uh, state work uh, are, are issued, you know, all, all kinds of things to make sure that uh, black owned or uh, people of color owned um, businesses are getting uh, a fair shake and mm -hmm. uh, things like that, yeah. And uh, do you remember how did, did the omnibus bill make it to um, committee? Did it make it to either the floor of the House or the Senate, like how far through the process did it make it? Do you remember? I, I'm pretty sure it got stalled in committee. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that. There was a, another bill about um, setting up cultural empowerment uh, centers uh, throughout the state um, that would provide uh, additional supports to uh, people of color-owned uh, businesses um, there were there were different things about housing and land ownership. There were one or two bills that uh, affected that. Um, there was a bill about representation on the Vermont Housing Conservation Board. Let's, required. Let's, slow, let's slow down. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. No, nothing to apologize for. I'm just okay. like, I'm listening to you all of a sudden. I'm like, wait, we should talk about each of those things. Um, <laughs> okay. And so, before we do, Emily, yeah. are these sounding new to you? Like, did they even hit your radar or? No, I mean, yeah. No, they're not. Sound the omnibus bill was not on my radar, but um, the idea of having a screener for legislation is certainly on my radar. And I actually developed one for the um, caucus that works on racial justice issues that we were sort of using internally to screen legislation. Um, I have high hopes for the idea of creating other screeners and staff to support those kinds of other screeners for legislation. It's a ongoing conversation. Um, and I, with no staff capacity on it, like it needs to be funded within our legislative staff to do something like that. And that's mm -hmm. um, always remarkably controversial, even though those folks work very hard. Um, on land ownership, we actually passed a pretty great bill last year. Um, that both created new representation at the Vermont Housing Conservation Board around black owned 
um, an Black, Indigenous, and people of color owned um, representation on the Vermont Housing Conservation Board. And then VHFA, Vermont Housing Finance Agency, has been working on a bunch of projects um, to increase land and home ownership for in communities of color. And that's really exciting um, as a result of legislation. Definitely still more to do there. And then there was, what is the other thing you said that I was like, oh, I also remember us diving into that. Uh, the cultural empowerment oh, centers. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's an interest. So um, Curtis Reed down here, um, the, what is that organization called? The Vermont Partnership for, for Fairness and Fairness Diversity. And Yes, yeah. <clears throat> um, they were awarded a contract that came out of a program that passed um, our Commerce and Economic Development Committees on the floor um, to support, to like provide active support to um, BIPOC businesses. And they've been sort of issuing regular reports to see how that is actually going. Um, I think yep. it's interesting that that would happen outside of state government rather than within state government. And I think there's much more that needs to happen there. Hmm. Well, and there was also a delay. Uh, there's a little bit of a snafu about issuing the contract. Uh, we we understood, so it, so everything got kind of delayed. So that's why it's been put off, mostly for the next biennium to resolve. But and yeah. that's happening across state government with yeah. everything we passed this last year to an extent that's like really fairly horrifying to watch sometimes. Hmm. Um, and then I, the cultural ambassador thing, I'm really curious about. You know. Um, when the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance opened the Kemp Center in Burlington, it was lauded as like the first um, community center in the state explicitly for folks of color. And I was really surprised because we've had the Root Social Justice Center down here in Brattleboro for quite a while now that is run by a cooperative um, of people of color that is very much a community center. Um, and so I, I think it's really great that we have these like two things at opposite corners of the state. And I'd be curious to see what would, what would happen and what the right framework is for developing more of those. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, part of the problem is of course we have, well, I think we have 50,000 people of color in, in the whole state. <laughs> of course, I mean, I know that, you know, our, our state's only got what, 640,000 people, but still. Uh, uh, so yeah, we're, we're, we're really in the early stages of um, trying to make sure that um, people of color not only feel um, feel that somebody cares, but actually availing themselves of um, you know some of these services uh, that we're trying to set up. But but then also, I mean, as I talk to other um, uh, the few uh, people of color who are actually in the legislature, um, you know, they caution about again, well-intentioned white people kind of swooping in and saying, oh, here, here's what we can do. We'll do this for you, uh, rather than, um, you know, really working with the um, uh, communities uh, that are directly affected and finding out from them what needs to happen so that there's a, a long-term, there's also a, a sustained long-term attempt at reform rather than just a one-off kind of here, see, now we fixed the problem because we did yeah. this one thing, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, and it's a perilous uh, walk. And I, I don't want to criticize anybody because I know my own personal story involves, I mean, years of, you know, 
going to uh, workshops and becoming more aware of white supremacy and white privilege and learning, you know, how my behavior over the years has affected people and then broadening that to understanding, you know, the systems. And I mean, it just, it's, it's a process, right. That we're all going through and that our society is going through. Uh, but I think we, you know, we, we've got to, and sometimes it's really hard, but we, we need to stick with it. <laughs> and I, I agree. And I also think it really highlights a very interesting political dynamic that's true in a lot of other areas, but I think particularly true here, which is that, you know, the, we have the Vermont Outcomes Report that comes out every year and very few people pay attention to it, but it's basically like data. It's very clear data telling the story of, you know, who and how people are thriving or not thriving in Vermont across a broad range of areas. In the last two years, the Government Accountability Committee, um, we did a, some really great, I guess that was actually three years ago, did some, we did some really great work with Susanna Davis's office to ensure that all of that information was disaggregated by race. And so then we have a very clear story of which are the areas in our state where Vermonters of color are not doing as well as white Vermonters. And from there, we have the opportunity to come up with like, what are like strategic root cause solutions to these very explicit data-driven problems, right? Um, but that is like so unsexy and takes a very <laughs> long time. And in the meantime, you know, Vermonters for good reason are like knocking on their legislators' metaphoric doors and saying like, what are you doing about this problem? So, you know, for me, when I'm sort of like sitting on the Ways and Means Committee, very aware of the racial wealth gap, what can I, like in my, you know, revenues context and tax policy context do about the racial wealth gap? I do a lot of research on it. What I learn is that the biggest thing I can do about the racial wealth gap is actually change filing status so that everyone, people can only file as an individual. You can't have joint family filing lots and lots of research at the national and state level that that is like one of the most impactful things we can do for the racial wealth gap. That's like a very complex story to tell. Like yeah. none of my colleagues are gonna wanna do that. Most of them are filing as families and with dependents, not as individuals. Like it's not like what any, you know, the vast, man I haven't had any person come to me and say like, please sponsor this legislation to change this particular thing. Certainly no black people have knocked on my door to say, please do this for me. And so like what that contrast between like the flashy thing that says we think we solved this and like a, what are systemic solutions to the specific situation in Vermont that we know is difficult. So hard, it's so hard. And so like, hard. <laughs> it's so hard. And like, not it's so hard, we shouldn't do it. Just like, it's so hard and we should keep on trucking through that hard thing. And probably we'll have some like flash in the pants, pan, flash in the pan, much better use of a lame idiom. Flash in the pan legislation that will make everyone feel good that they got something done. And then we'll have like the low, the slower, longer yep. legislation. And we can't let those quick wins derail us from the longer story. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely, yeah. Well, and actually, I mean, if I would bring up uh, like a, a little bit of a, of a 
uh, a shibboleth. Uh, we, we're using fun words today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the whole idea about uh, having it like a truth and reconciliation uh, committee that I know that, well, that was, that got a lot of attention, um, you know, last, last biennium, but, you know, actually, please ask Susanna Davis about that. Uh, you know, I mean, that actually may not be the best way to uh, right wrongs. Uh, it, it it can also re-injure uh, old hurt, you know, bring, bring up old hurts and re-injure people who've already been terribly damaged. And to, to what end? What, you know, what's going to come out of that? But does it make white people feel better? Because it looks like we've really done something uh, big. Um that may be more, you know, the, the impact of it. So yeah, we just, we have to keep having these conversations and it is really hard, uh, Emily. So, uh, but good on you for being in the legislature and keep, keep having them, please. <laughs> Thanks. Welcome back anytime, Debbie. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I mean, the Chisholm um, County voters would have to like weigh in on it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, for for you, um, Debbie, what what ha have would have been the hard moments for you, and how have you trucked through them? Well, it's it, it really uh, I, I Vermont Your Faith Action belongs to a national network uh, called Faith in Action, and um, over the last ten years, we have uh, very intentionally changed the um, makeup of the people at the top of, of that um, stru of our structures. Uh, our executive director went from being a, you know, a white man to being a, a black man. Um, executive directors, you know, like my counterparts in other states are um, by and large, you know, much more, you know, uh, Latinx or uh, black or um, indigenous, um, more women are involved. Uh, you know, and we've had these um, gatherings where we've we've shared our stories and we've worked with uh, organizations that can help us talk about race and, and um, you know, figure things out about race relations. You know, so, I mean, I think for me, uh, it has been wonderful to watch and yet also a little bit um, uncomfortable uh, to be involved in this. You know, I, I went from being part of the majority to being I mean, white people are really a minority now in our in our network, uh, particularly at my, my at my level. And uh, I go to these gatherings, and you know, and but now I I know what marginalized communities have always felt like, right? You know, if if you've been a black person, you've been the only black person in a, in a room of a bunch of white people. Um, now the tables are turned, and that takes some getting used to, you know. And um, but we're actually listening to one another, and. You know, we we sure don't always agree. We don't. Um, and then, yeah, I feel sometimes like, oh, you know, what I'm doing is is I'm, I'm being a good white person and I'm I'm trying to help and and I'm making things better. And then, you know, somebody tells me, well, no, actually, here here are the you know here's X, Y, and Z unintended consequences of what you're suggesting. And you know, don't pat yourself on the back. Uh, and um, you know, so. It's just, it's, it's really, um, I think the biggest challenges are just those kind of day-to-day, person-to-person interactions um, and interactions within our groups um, of, you know, just total, always checking myself, always listening to how I'm 
uh, impacting other people, listening to them, give me feedback. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it's hard, but it's it's well worth the, the effort for sure. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you talk about the changes that have happened in your national organization. Um, how, how do I want to put this? Um, I'm trying to give people something like I, I think sometimes when we are trying to evolve as a society and 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 change and um, grow, um, it can be that that growth can be intimidating and and people can back away from it. So this next question is is kind of asked in the spirit of um, kind of the 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 green grass that's on the other side of the fence you know when you've worked so hard and and what are you seeing so as you as you see your organization go through these changes what have been some of the um benefits of that oh wow we've we've really um we've grown we've expanded in, in terms of the numbers of people um you know i think we also have um uh, people who are very, very passionate uh, about uh, these these issues, and it's great to see that that energy uh, that they bring. Um, and you know, I just think we, we've all we've gone to kind of a different level um, in in some ways because I mean we've always said that the in organizing the first revolution is internal, so people have to come into organizing with this um, sense of self reflection and and. Um, an an idea that they want to be part of the the solution of uh, you know really really understanding really grappling with what's wrong in our society, and and then passionately wanting to be part of transforming it. And um, you know we don't always some of my folks you know may, they may not be directly uh, affected by um, affordable housing for instance you know a lot of my folks they have their own homes they they may be retired from somewhere else they you know they have more resources they they've never been out on the streets themselves so they don't have that connection but with the racial justice work um, you know they've really um, uh, tried to to grapple uh, in a in a deeper way. Uh, with uh, their place in society and their place vis-a-vis -vis people of color. And um, I think that's really, really, really good for uh, for our organization as a whole. Thank you, Debbie Ingram. Um, so we have just about five minutes left for the end of the, the episode. And we've pulled on a lot of threads. So I want to bring this back to Proposition 2. Um, and voting on that in November, and then just touching base again on like, okay, we've done that, so what's next? Just to kind of uh, summarize a few things. Who wants to go first? Well, the proposition's on your ballot in November. If the majority of Vermonters vote yes, and I do hope they will, then that's the last step for the constitution. It, it is then amended. It is declared amended. And then um, I guess all those historians and curators we talked about are gonna, you know, have to spend it. They have filing to do. Filing to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but after that, it is entirely administrative and filing work to do. And that's really exciting. Um, if folks want to learn more in the lead up to that, um, and get involved in these local conversations in order to make sure that more Vermonters know what a yes vote means. 
Debbie, what's the best way for them to get connected? I know down here, our regional organizer is Mike Maricki. Um, right. That is his paid non-session job as we, many of us have those in order to pay our rents or mortgages. Um, it used to be Daniel Quip, if folks remember him doing that work. And um, most of the churches in the area that I'm in regular touch with or in regular touch with me are certainly connected to the Alliance. Um, it's not called an alliance. It's called action. I want interfaith action. I really want to mean alliance, yeah. Debbie. Um, <laughs> Glad I'm not the only one who did that I, this show. I What's your website and like how do yeah. people, um, how would, what are other ways for people to get involved in this conversation? Yeah. Our website is viavt.org. Those are V's as in Vermont. Uh, and it has a list of uh, activities. Of course, time is getting short. Um, uh, so in terms of the campaign itself, we're, we're doing some phone banking, some door to door. Uh, we have lawn signs, we have t-shirts. Um, we have people signing pledge cards. We have people tabling at different events. Um, those will still go on for the next you know month or so. Um, but in terms of getting involved in BIA longer term, we would love for you to do that. Um, you can really just con use you can use the contact form on our on our website. That all that comes to me. I will. I promise I will respond. I always do, and I will. Uh, I, I learned that as a legislator, and I will. Uh, you know, I'll get in touch with you. And if you live in an area where we already have an organizer, uh, then terrific. But with the, the power of Zoom now, we have uh, a number of statewide uh, organizing committees. So uh, no matter where you are in the state, we can connect you with other uh, Vermonters who are doing this work with us. And just um, out of curiosity, Debbie, you know, you talked about a number of bills that didn't make it through around, around racial justice that didn't make it through the last biennium. What are you hoping uh, the legislature will take up first um, when they return in January. Well, of course, they have to rewrite everything, right? So the you know it's a total reset. So um, we're we're just we're kind of trying to juggle the campaign, but then also looking ahead to the legislative session. And we're certainly going to be working with the Vermont Racial Justice Alliance and, and Mark Hughes on that. So. Uh, that's still kind of in process um, as to what um, what legislation we're going to um, introduce. We we do have this. Uh, we uh, VIA has had this concept of a moral economy, and that encompasses housing and um, uh, the way workers are treated. So that the, so I, I and I'm pretty sure that's where our focus will be: legislation around that for um, for racial that incorporates racial justice as well. And um, Thank you. for regular listeners, Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets Institute, who is a regular guest on the show, um, the Public Assets Institute and Vermont Interfaith Action do a lot of collaboration around the moral economy in that story. Yes. Thank you. So we are out of time. Debbie Ingram, so glad you could join us today. Uh, Emily, if people wanna find more information uh, about you, where do they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you will find links to all my social media accounts and other ways to get in touch with me, like my phone number and email address. And I look forward to connecting. There are also a number of really exciting events in the next two weeks. Oh. Um, so this Sunday at the Latches Theater, we have a film screening and then 
panel conversation about the Reproductive Liberty Amendment. It's a great opportunity to get all of your questions answered so that you can maybe practice having some of these conversations yourself in your community. We have a Reproductive Liberty fundraiser the following weekend at the Retreat Farm Dance Party, um, having a community conversation with Lieutenant Governor David Zucker, Lieutenant Governor candidate David Zuckerman on Tuesday to talk about um, green economy and green building. And so like lots of fun stuff coming up. So please be in touch about it. Thank you. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station every Friday at 2 p.m. You can also find us on BCTV. We thank them for all their support and as well as our Captivate page. And you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. Have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>